Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with sociology professor Jackie Hagan and city and regional planning professor Mai Nguyen. In our conversation, we discuss the impact of local implementation of federal policies on both housing equity and migrant workers. And I think is that, that the federal government is important. And, the the federalist government is important, but policy unfolds at the local level, yeah. right? And I right. think that as it unfolds, I mean, I'm thinking now in policy language and immigration language, we would call implementation. Mm-hmm. Once it's implemented, it can become more exclusive mm-hmm. or more inclusive. Right. It can move in different directions. Right. It can be innovative. It can have unintended consequences. So I think... Yeah. Um, I mean, we can talk about our immigration research. Right. Right, like so, right, right, right. So I'm um, thinking of, like, if you just take immigration policy, most of us think of immigration policy as something that occurs at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at this administration and we look at what's going on in immigration policy, we tend to look at federal-level policy and the policies right. are merging from the Trump administration, whether they be refugee quotas or whether they be returned to Mexico and apply for asylum. But we know that we're in a period, and we have been, what, since 1996, I would say, um, with the implementation of 287G, or really people using that, incorporating that provision which allowed local uh, officials to partner with federal, that we've seen a process of devolution where the federal government might or does determine who comes into the United States and under what conditions, but has very little to do with what happens when they're here. Mm-hmm. And that's really what? occurs at the local level. Can you level. explain what that 287G is? Oh, 287 is a, G, uh, a, a provision um, that was located in the 1996 Immigrant Responsibility, Reform and Responsibility Act of 1996. And it was a little tiny provision that nobody really paid attention to it, But in there, it said that local communities, and in particular local bureaucracies, can, in this case police, can interact and work with and partner with federal government in regulating and controlling migrant populations at the local level. That is, we'll give you funding to help us find and locate migrants and help arrest them, detain them, and deport them. And the federal government in response for that cooperation, released funds to sheriff's offices, counties, et cetera. And North Carolina is an interesting one because it's signed on to probably more 287Gs than most states. Yeah, and it's it's been a paradigm shift in the way in which immigration policy and implementation mm-hmm. has, um, has occurred throughout U.S. history in, mm-hmm. in the sense that the federal government is supposed to really control immigration, the creation of immigration policy and the implementation of it, the enforcement of it. And moving to the local level has really changed that landscape of policy implementation. Can you give some specifics about that? Yeah, so I think of, when we think about, we used to frame this as there's immigration policy and then there's immigrant policy. And immigrants, what's happened when they're here. And Mm -hmm. so we looked at institutions like education, 
for example, health cares. These institutions played a vital role, churches, in how immigrants are integrated. That's always occurred at the local level. But what we have now is that we have actual enforcement bureaucracies involved in it. For example, granting or not granting driver's license to individuals. That would be a policy that is a local level policy design. Some people refer to them as alienage laws, immigrant policies that would be designed to either maintain or deter someone from living in an area. Allowing someone um, in-state tuition would be another example. Okay. Or another example might be allowing p local police or sheriffs to actually start the deportation process, right. which they haven't been able to do prior to 1996. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. What about the area of housing, Mai? Can you talk a little bit about sure. so current research? I think that there have been a few trends in the recent past that have spoken to this devolution in terms mm -hmm. of innovations in housing policy in the sense that uh, in the last few decades, the federal government, and when I say the federal government, Congress has appropriated f less and less money towards um, housing um, and the construction of public housing, for example, or subsidized housing. And so what that has done is it has it forced local jurisdictions to think about how they're going to raise money for the development of affordable housing, and also to really just think about how they want to create more inclusive cities when it comes to housing. And that's not what it used to be in the past. And you see places like this city of um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, for example, yeah. saying, you know, these, these zoning laws that we have, these single family zoning laws are actually inhibiting us from building a diversity of housing, duplexes, quadplexes, affordable housing. So let's just get rid of that. So it's because of the lack of funding these cities are thinking about ways in which they need to innovate in order to break down the barriers and challenges to build affordable housing. And um, you see it sort of a movement across the U.S. So do you, th I mean, what we're speaking about here, of course, is variation, that yeah. we would expect there'd be variation in housing quality, accessibility, affordability, based on place and the ways in which laws are implemented at the local level, right? Right, well, I'd say the way in which they're interpreted. Okay, good. They're interpreted um, from the federal government. So the federal government might pass a certain law, let's just say the 1968 Fair Housing Act. And some cities, which, which, which was supposed to eliminate discrimination within the housing market, and some cities really embraced that. They said, okay, we have to build this infrastructure. We have to provide funding to fair housing agencies in order for them to actually investigate discrimination and violations of the Fair Housing Act. Other cities said, you know what, we're just going to ignore that because we kind of like this racially segregated landscape. We don't want integration. And so... Yeah, the law was passed at the federal level, but local jurisdictions get to decide whether or not how, whether and how they will implement those those laws. Another example I'm thinking of in the area of immigration, and while this isn't a policy per se, we could think about Obama's Dream Act or DACA Act, which you know basically this order that would provide um, temporary relief to young people who came um, with their parents when they were young and, and um, without papers, and how that's been interpreted differently at 
California versus somewhere like North Carolina. So that in California, you've actually embraced this idea of um, a DREAM Act, and they have their own DREAM Act, and they provide all different opportunities, including in-state tuition, driver's license opportunities, the right to work, et cetera, whereas in North Carolina, we don't provide those opportunities. So we have really interpreted yeah. Um, and you know, responded differently. So, so there's interpreting kind of within the law, but then there's also a resistance movement. Yes, right. So, right. sanctuary cities yes. might yep. be yep. not adhering to federal mm-hmm. laws, right. regulations, <laughs> and saying, you know what, we are not going to participate in the two A eighty seven G program and allow our police officers to ask for immigration documentation. Right, and actively resisting the federal government. There's that going on, yeah. too. And but what you usually find is that in states and locations where you have a long history of immigration and you have strong social advocacy and social infrastructure supports in place, like California, um, that you're more likely to have more inclusive response to some mm-hmm. of these policies, whereas in somewhere like North Carolina, where immigration is relatively recent, and there's not a real institutional infrastructure developed that um, opportunities yeah, are going to be more limited. I think speaks to the governance structure, right? Yes. Not just government, Meant, but, but, but right. the nonprofits, the advocacy yeah. organizations. And having that governance structure in place can allow local jurisdictions to really innovate and perhaps resist and um, maybe think outside of the box in terms of creating more inclusive places. So it sounds like despite all these federal policies and stuff, local elections and, and those decisions become, if you think of it this way, it, it seems more important and more essential that you really know who these local, uh, who these people are making the decisions in your cities and in your towns. Well, yeah, I mean, it, and also it's what question you're interested in. If you're interested in immigrant reintegration, for example, then you're very, you have to look at this at the local level. Okay. Because the institutions at the local level and the social actors and the governance are going to have a huge bearing on the integration pathways and opportunities. But, but I think that you, you make a good point in that we tend to focus a lot on national yeah. elections. Yeah. We kind of, it's sort of the squirrel that distracts us mm-hmm. <laughs> from the things, <laughs> the things that really matter in our daily lives. Yeah. And local actors and local elected officials can really do some cool and innovative things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just look at the city of Durham and what they're doing for affordable housing. And they just passed an affordable housing bond. Um, that gives, I think that dedicates 90-some-odd million dollars towards affordable housing. They are talking about relaxing single-family zoning rules, mm-hmm. ordinances. Um, and, and so that scale, the scale of the local, I think you can make impact and change much quicker than you can at the national level. It's a very good point. Do you, do you agree? Yes, I do agree. It's yeah. a very good point. So how do the um, how does affordable housing differ, for example, in its meaning in Durham and Chapel Hill? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So the HUD definition, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the, their definition of affordable is that you don't pay more than 30% of your income on housing and utilities. And given the average price of homes in Chapel Hill and Durham, that it is, 
you your income has to be higher to afford a home in Chapel Hill because okay. housing prices are higher. Can you talk a little bit about your your research you're doing right now in your fellowship and how that relates to your overall um, scholarship? Okay, and well, my also, one thing we need to do is, if you don't mind, like saying who you are, so okay, people great. can match the name with the voice. Okay, great. I'm Jackie Hagen. I'm a professor of sociology here at Carolina. Thank you. Um, so my research generally looks at the study of migration and inequality, I guess, in the broadest sense. Okay. And my current project focuses on return migration and gender and inequality. Um, and um, as most people are aware, return migration flows are, have increased dramatically in recent years. And the people who are returning home are much more diverse than they have been in the past. They're not just persons who are retiring or at the end of their labor market career, but we also have many people who have been forced home for example, through deportation orders. But gender um, is a really interesting analytical lens into which to look at, whether it be incorporation or integration or reintegration, which is my concern, return migration and reintegration, because we know that the whole migration process is gendered in many ways. That is, women and men move for different reasons, women and men enter different labor markets, Women and men have different family responsibilities, so it would only stand to reason or to hypothesize that the return migration experience could be different for men and women. And so that's really what I'm kind of asking. Does it create more, um, does it empower women through, the, um, through earnings, through the experience of mobility, through the experience of work, or do women, for example, go back and just go back into the same labor market and domestic um, environment that they had been before. And how does that vary compared for men and also across? Does it create more equality among men and women or less? So that's kind of in a nutshell. My that's area. great. Thank you. Sure. Hi, I'm Mai Nguyen, Associate Professor of City and Regional Planning at UNC. And um, my project, my book project this semester that I'm working on as a faculty fellow at the IEH really builds off of a multimedia project that I've been working on called In the Shadows of Ferguson. And in that project, I look at over 100 years of housing and urban policy that have created segregation and inequality uh, between African Americans and whites. And the book project really focuses in on the role of planning and urban planning mm -hmm. and whether or not planners have shaped the segregated processes through their actions at the early turn of the century and how we continue to reinforce these segregated spatial patterns and to exacerbate, exacerbate inequality with our policies and practices and plans. And the hope is to really then come to a place where we can say, well, how do we stop? How do we, mm -hmm. how do we intervene and how do we mitigate these processes that are like a snowball, right? They're continuing, inequality is getting worse, segregation is not getting any better. We mm -hmm. still live in a very segregated, racially segregated world. Um, so how do we stop this, this, this trend, this sort yeah. of fast moving and, and growing trend? Yeah, so uh, 
you were talking a little bit about before, but how do you see your projects kind of intersecting as you discuss? Oh, as we're talking about local context, et cetera. Yeah. One of the big, my, my study, and I should have mentioned, is going to be, um, is take, takes place in Mexico. Okay. Which receives currently the largest return flow in mm. the world. Okay. Um, and so we basically were below zero in terms of net migration, which has mean more people are returning to Mexico than coming to the United States. Mm. But one of the variables that I look at is local context. That is where people return to has a bearing on their mobility pathways, whether it be economic, social, or psychological um, pathways. So returning to a large city like Mexico City may offer different opportunities based on the resources that migra migrants turn with in comparison to returning to a small agricultural community in Oaxaca, mm -hmm. where you might not have those opportunities. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, immigration policy at the local <laughs> level is how Jackie and I became friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember you finished your first piece, which I use in my both my undergraduate and graduate seminar, which is a wonderful yeah. piece that you wrote on um, immigration policy at the local level but and the implications. we were so passionate about um, these anti-immigration policies that were mm -hmm. really devastating to communities, right? So they can have the effect of these these policies that are adopted and implemented, these sort of national policies adopted and implemented at the local level can tear apart communities. And um, I did that work for a long time, and then I just, it, it was just heart-wrenching. And so I had to do mm -hmm. something that was more positive, right? Because I wanted, I wanted to fix it. I wanted to yeah. figure out how to actually address um, these problems at the local level, which then turned me into, um, or shifted my research into how to, how to create more integrated communities for immigrants. And that ties into the work I'm doing now, which is creating inclusive cities, racially inclusive cities. So mm -hmm. it's been you know, a progression of getting to that place of how do we create solutions? We, we understand the problem, and right. now what are the solutions, mm -hmm. right? And, and implementing it at the local scale is something I can, I can actually influence, right? I can go talk to mayors. I can go talk to elected officials. I can talk to local planners um, and help them to uh, figure out how to implement some of these solutions. That's great. Jackie, I just want to make sure you said, so you're saying in Mexico now there's more folks coming back home right, than we're are below zero okay. Net migration is below zero because that is more people are returning than coming to the United States because from the information you would receive from a mass media diet you wouldn't have that impression so no, I just want to make sure that wouldn't. was yeah um, I mean Mexican migration has been slowing down for some yeah. time so a lot of the new immigration that we're experiencing from south of the border is coming from Central America mm -hmm. but it's it's below net migration for a number of reasons um, the economy in Mexico has improved in recently last decade, so there are more opportunities for return migration to mo mo return migrants, excuse me, to mobilize their skills they've learned abroad, and um, deploy them in local labor markets. It's also um, return migration is up, and and migration between U.S. and Mexico is below zero because more people don't want to come. They are fearing mm -hmm. coming to the United States. The borders are enforced. And it's become more dangerous. Yeah. And then there are many people who, you know, basically um, are returning preemptively. Um, there are persons who are being, of course, persons being deported. And we're deporting, you know, what, what did we deport last year? 400,000 persons. And I think 80% of those 
over to Mexico and Central America. But in, along with that is you have these preemptive returns of family members, whether they be children or spouses or sisters, that are also protesting with their feet mm-hmm. and really tired of the um, policing and surveillance that they've been experiencing here, and they're following their parents at home. So one of the biggest return migration flows that we have now to Mexico is children, wow. U.S.-born children. And that's a whole other. That's a whole other layer. I think it's something remarkable um, that there may be over 100,000 children in elementary and secondary schools oh, wow. in the, Mexico that were actually born in the United States yeah. but have followed their parents' home who were either undocumented or were, were deported home or returned home just to be with family. And that's got to be a strain on the schools because they haven't a, had a Spanish language instruction. No, yeah, it's wow. a huge strain on the yeah. schools because many of these children don't even, they don't speak Spanish, of course. Uh, that's yeah. one of the, and they don't they have a Mexican have... passport. And so there's mm. all sorts of documentation issues, et cetera. That's yeah, sure. Sure. Um, I know that you work on skills and I'm, I'm really interested in hearing more about what skills these migrants learn here that they then that they then take back to Mexico, and how do those skills get implemented, used, or and how do they affect the community, the economy? Um, well, what I'm doing is categorizing my skills into like tangible skills and intangible skills. Intangible skills would be education certificates, like they may have gone to school here, they may have gone to a trade university, they may have. Um, um, actually certification. They could also acquire technical skills, um, learning how to frame a house, something along those lines, welding, etc. They also refer to intangible skills like, oh, and they also could have like English language would be a skill that you could make, you know, it's a tangible skill that you can take back to a local labor market. But many of the migrants here acquire skills that are social in nature, and those, these are what we argue are gendered. So women coming over, they typically work in customer care, service, domestic care. They may acquire English language schools and caregiving skills and management skills and customer service skills that then they, can, they can then apply to the tourism industry in particular places in Mexico. And that has a huge implications for local development opportunities. Or you might have a migrant who comes back and learns how to, um, well, I have several cases of people who've come over here and worked in manufacturing and acquired all sorts of skills in tailoring, et cetera. They bring those back. They bring the equipment back. They hire um, um, employees locally, or they'll Mm. hire return migrants. And so their entrepreneurial activities can also create new niches in local economies. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that skills can be deployed, but there has to be an economy and a diverse enough industrial sector to allow them to do so. So what do we lose, the U.S.? We needs? lose a lot of entrepreneurial right. skills. So as I hear you talking about this, right, the Mexico Ameri- is gaining. The Me- Mexico is gaining. And then we are losing. I've had so many migrants, well, I'm going to say so many, but I've had a number of migrants who've said to me, I learned the American way when I was in the United States. I learned to be more efficient. I learned to be more democratic in the workplace. I learned to understand my rights. Those are all skills that can be then mobilized to reorganize workplaces and work efforts in Mexico. And these are kind of untapped skills. We know from the 
economics literature that migrants tend to fare better than non-migrants when they return. Oh, wow. And much of that is because they do invest in entrepreneurial activities. That is, they're coming to the United States to earn a target amount of money to go back and invest it. So we've seen that, but we really haven't linked it to the types of skills they bring back. We just say, oh, they have capital and they invest mm -hmm. it. But it's clear that in many cases, it's the English language, the work type skills, the new ways of approaching work, the new ways of thinking about implementing technology that really drive innovation yeah. at the local level among return migrants. It's fascinating. It feels like it also has something to do with the people that would migrate. They have the, the courage, that's, resiliency to yeah, kind of do something like that problems. too. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the big problems, selectivity, <laughs> right, right? right? So that is the very people that are migrating have a ambition, a drive. Mm -hmm. They're selective in and of itself. And that's a question that's very difficult to get at. How much of the way that they're responding and their innovation upon return is also intrinsic to the migration process more generally. And you do find it. So we have questions um, based on what we've got, several hundred interviews now. Um, what, why did you go to the United States? What motivated you? And beyond the, you know, the, what you would expect, higher wages, I've got to pay off a debt, I want to build a house, I want to start a business, is just how often adventure, mm -hmm. you know, adventure, trying something new, you know, wanting to get out, change. For your next book project, maybe <laughs> <laughs> you can see whether or not there's return migrants from other countries so you can compare. Yes, yeah, that's really the way to go. Yeah, that that's would be really, really interesting. Or to do something, maybe we could do something comparative. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> what other countries? Like other well, she could do Vietnam, oh, right? Because yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. you've done so much work in Vietnam, yeah, which would be very true. interesting because their labor market experiences and their um, settlement experiences could be very different, right? There, there are return migrants, migrants actually, to, to Vietnam. Vietnam. I wonder I have how cousins who have gone and live moved back over there. Um, I'm wondering if entrepreneurship is kind of the labor market the mobility pathway mm -hmm. there as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about it. You've been gone a long time. You've lost connections in the labor market. You don't know the employee, the employers, etc. So really, the name of the game is entrepreneurship, just like it is here. Mm -hmm. Immigrants have yeah. really high entrepreneurship rates here because they can't break into the main street labor markets. So yeah. they start their own businesses and develop new little niches like the nail salon, hotel industry, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Right. And you could see that it would be interesting to see what kind of niches are developed in yeah. Vietnam. Definitely. Great. Thank you. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.